Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Cut and Splice. This is Matt. This is Gil. And this is Jason. And uh, tonight we are uh, blessed to be joined again with uh, Andrew. Uh, thank you, Jason. That's right, everyone. I'm back, ready to bring <laughs> the uh, the fun back to the podcast. The fun yeah, we've well, been uh, missing. No. <laughs> I, uh, it was unfortunate we didn't have you uh, do the opening again as you uh, so masterfully did once before. But but uh, yeah, but uh, go ahead, Matt. Um, let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this time around we are talking about Steven Spielberg's 2002 masterpiece and yes i am inserting my normative values into that uh minority report uh starring tom cruise based off of a philip k dick short story a science fiction story uh set uh, albeit fairly implausibly in 2054 uh with a premise that we have a pre a pre crime unit that uses pre cognizance known as precogs who can see murders before they happen and we are basically dealing with uh, a really interesting philosophical dilemma where people are you know, you know, basically, we we're dealing in a situation where we can stop murders before they happen, but at the expense, possibly, of civil liberties. Tom Cruise plays the chief of the pre-crime unit, who is haloing uh, or imprisoning people. Uh, for future crimes and it all seems perfect until John Anderton played by Tom Cruise is flagged himself for a possible future murder and everything starts to unravel uh, so I, I mean uh, full disclosure I've watched this movie at least once every year since it's come out, at least. So I've probably seen it like 35 times. Uh, so I'm biased. I'll let the other guys talk about it. Well, and I guess we can say that the reason why we chose this movie, we, we've been debating uh, many options to, to bring uh, Andrew back. Um but but I guess this one um, was brought up, uh, Andrew, right? Because uh, you're not as big of a fan of it as as say maybe the three of us might be. E even maybe the three of us might be on a spectrum. But um, and that's why uh, it was suggested. Ah yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think anyone's as big of a fan of this movie as Matt is. <laughs> I think you know that could probably be said for like. Even the people involved in it, I think he is. 
I I do correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but just to chime in on what uh, Andrew's saying, um, I do believe you listed this as your in your top like ten or maybe even top five of uh, the you know the films of this century. Uh, it's it's at least in my top ten. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean uh, the Spielberg one, right? What? Or uh, sorry, what was the? What were you saying? The... Oh, I, I think it's in his top ten of all films of this century, like of everything the, since oh, two, since two thousand one. Yeah. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, That's a pretty bold statement. Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry, I missed that. I was letting the cat in. Um, no but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the um, um, yeah. Also, I was gonna comment. I I, I try to stop myself uh, before we recorded. Um, it also seems that Matt has this very strong affinity um, for movies that have to do with freedom. <laughs> and uh, and we've had this on the podcast before. Um, this is not released yet, but it would be released by when this is released. But we did like The Lives of Others and, um, and uh, Thank You for Smoking. We debated the whole... Um, merits of how that movie was about freedom so i feel like uh there's uh, movies that have to do with with freedom and 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 choice and things like that um especially like anything that's like when the government comes down on on the individual i feel like matt uh it gives like an extra oomph in matt's uh you know <laughs> as, it should. as it should but but to, uh, as any true libertarian Gil, should. Yeah. Gil, also not only is this uh, a film that I'll just say at least um, has some libertarian, um, let's just say themes or tones or something like that in it. Uh, it, it it's also a Tom Cruise movie, so that's going to be a big deal for Matt as well. And Spielberg, yeah, because I mean, I, if I'm not mistaken, Triple, Matt yeah. several times have said that Spielberg is like the greatest filmmaker of all time right Matt? Uh, not a I, I difficult said, remark I, to make i've i've said that he's the greatest living filmmaker oh living uh, uh I, I i would not deny the possibility that he's the greatest filmmaker ever but i i have said greatest living uh, to you know put in that caveat of like kubrick and uh hitchcock and so on and so forth but no no i, oh. I yeah yeah i mean spielberg is definitely up there so this is our very long-winded way of saying this is a very matte movie it's, matte. <laughs> it's as the kids say it's matt af it's it <laughs> completes the trilogy right so it's thank you for smoking uh, lives of others and <laughs> my <laughs> It has politics, it has philosophy, and uh, it's aspects of noir. Uh, Tom Cruise, like you said, I mean, yeah, it's Matt all day. It's as cinegasmic as it can be for Matt. <laughs> so, so maybe the way we could start it off is uh, maybe I should, uh, I'll side with Andrew a bit on my reaction to it, rewatching it this time. And, and maybe Andrew can give his... Um, um, review and then and then Jason and Matt can give their counter. But but I, I really like this movie. I actually rated it a nine back when, so I was a pretty big fan of it. Uh, it's pretty captivating stuff, and that's very the themes and everything just really worked well. 
I felt like this time around, I, I, I always try to look at things in the lens of like, if I like the movie, what's wrong with it? If I dislike the movie, what's right with it when I'm watching it for this podcast? Um, so so I, I did notice a few touches that I felt like was a bit off tone and a bit unnecessary. And, um, the, and even though it's a very fast paced movie, I feel like it could have been slightly shorter. Um, so there's a few things that I did notice that I would consider demoting it under a nine, maybe like eight and a half. Like I, I would struggle to do a, go all the way to an eight, but, um, but yes, and we can get, of course, deeper into them with spoilers and all that. But, um, but that was my overall re- reaction that yes, it's captivating. It's Spielberg. It's, it's a great premise. Um, but it's, it's not a a 100% home run, which is why I feel like I should slightly demote it from my, I guess, initial reaction to it when I was younger and I'm sure was kind of like blown away by it. You know. But a- Andrew, what were your, uh, some of your, um, you know, like criticisms or uh, things that bothered you about it? Well, I think the first thing I should say about it is like, this is my first time watching this movie in like several, several years. The last time I watched it was again when Matt made me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's um, it's it's definitely interesting because uh, this time around I just finished watching it today, and I definitely enjoyed the movie more than I remembered liking it before. And I think I had similar feelings. And I feel like there was a lot that I wanted to like about the movie. You know, it has spectacular cast, awesome cinematography, uh, compelling story, that that sort of thing. But kind of thinking about it and really trying to break down my my feelings on it, I felt it was something that was felt fairly simplistic. You know, it's a very focused story revolved around uh, Tom Cruise's detective narrative, but it's still quite a longer piece that over two and a half hours. I think the inciting incident where um, where Tom's character is basically targeted for uh, for the murder that he's supposed to commit. Doesn't kick in until like after well into half an hour into the movie, um, which was I, I was surprising. I actually took took a look at the clock, just just trying to figure out keep track of the pacing of it. Um, so th- there's some of that for me, and I just think about in terms of watchability. Like I'm nowhere near close to where, where Matt is. Like you know where he have, wants to watch it like once a year. And when it comes to the how I would rank like Spielberg movies or Tom Cruise movies, movies I would want to go back to rewatch or share and recommend with others, it, it still isn't something that really falls into that category for me. I could think it's a nice thing to watch every once in a while. And it was interesting doing a deep dive on the podcast, but just it feels like something is missing keeping it from being a home run. Um, I think part of it might be that the Anderton character can be a, a somewhat unlikable. Uh, someone who's in a fairly dark place. He's a, a cop. He's a, a drug addict, and he's also uh, arresting people right on the before they really do anything wrong. Uh, so it's hard to be sympathetic, even though he we can relate a lot to the fact that he's gone through an incredibly sad tragedy. But at the same time, like he's somebody who's very willing to imprison people. Uh, but, you know, the second that he becomes the target, you know, he suddenly does not believe in the system as much. So I think that does kind of 
make it a bit hard to root for his character. And then I think as the film progresses and we get towards like the third act and we shift into to the end game, which I'm sure we'll talk about more in there, it just felt a little odd. You know, it felt like a little disjointed from the rest of the story. So I'll get into that a bit more later on, but those those are my initial thoughts. What would you rate it on a scale of one to ten? It's hard to say because <laughs> I don't really think about movies in terms like that. Um, I'd probably say it's an eight, you know, just because there's a lot of really compelling things about it. But again, it's not something that I would really want to go back towards like I would for some of the other movies around that time. I think I'd probably want to rewatch War of the Worlds uh, before I would probably go back to this one. Uh, definitely Last Samurai feel like would be more compelling from something that was made around the same time. In terms of like sci-fi, a movie like where I would want to watch at least once a year, Interstellar, uh, would be something I just find to be more interesting and compelling than 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 this than this beloved uh, movie of man. Okay, well, I I mean, (laughs) it's it's still pretty high high praise uh, on a scale of one to ten. Jason, uh, do you want to chime in? Um, I'm, I'm just surprised because, um, I, even though I know you both said, said some positive stuff about it, um, I, I thought Gil and Andrew were going to say much more negative, uh, reviews in terms of their grade for the movie, because, you know, I really love this movie, but I was trying to decide if I should, if it would be an eight or a nine for me. Um, <laughs> so that that's weird to be, <laughs> but, um, uh, watching this movie, uh, this time was the first time I've seen it in probably at least 10 to 15 years. I would say, I know I saw it in theaters and I know I saw it probably when it came out on DVD, like I probably rented it. And I probably saw it at least once or twice in the following years. Um, so maybe three times total. But um, I was definitely a, around 2004, 2005, I was like a really big Colin Farrell fan. I, I, I still am a big fan of his. But um, that's when his big studio movies were hitting left and right, like one right after the other. And uh, I was like trying to go see every single thing he was in. Um, so I know for sure I'd seen it at least three times. And then even though I always liked the movie, I never owned it until just recently. And I never really had a chance or, or made the effort to watch it, even though I've always liked this movie. So it was just a weird thing as a movie I've always liked, hadn't seen it in over 15 years, probably. And, um, yeah, uh, it was interesting seeing it again. I, I really liked this uh, this viewing as well. I definitely noticed a few things that kind of irked me a little bit, but not anything that would like ruin the movie or anything like that. Just just stuff that I was like, oh, that's a little weird. I wouldn't have done that if I made this movie. Yeah, I, I think I'd probably do like an 8.5, somewhere around there. Um, I think it's a very solid movie. And it's. Um, I don't think that we get a whole lot of sci-fi that's as solid as uh as this is and um yeah it's a pretty great movie that's a good point about the um just 
good sci-fi is tough to come by um for sure unfortunately yeah, yeah. And then the fact that, that so I, I do think me and Jason are, are in a pretty similar place. And I'm not surprised if Andrew uh, is also in a similar place. And, and we'll see what Matt says. But but I I just I think it's important to point out that maybe the, the reason why um, uh, we're more tame or anything, it's because it's Spielberg, because I guess the standards are are so high. Although I am surprised that Andrew said that like War of the Worlds would be a revisit before this because... So maybe those were where the differences are, the rewatchability of it. <laughs> I just feel like War of the Worlds is, is a bit more fun. And um, I yeah, did. I think, is, well, I, think, I think it's a bit more fun. It's a bit more suspenseful. You know, it's a freaking alien invasion versus a detective story. There's, there's a little bit more there. Like, yeah, but, but this is a movie that doesn't have any ch- child characters. That's more fun to me. It's not no, that's not true. That's not true. Oh, there no, are no, yeah, yeah, his kid died. <laughs> that's the end. Still care. Still care. Well, I, I think uh War of the Worlds to me is, is more so because of the gravity of the source material that and, and how it was disappointing compared to it. That's that, true, because because it's a remake. That's that's a big difference, yeah. Yeah, that's which is why I um um you know, which is why I felt like well, I'm not talking about the movie, but the book. I mean Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but because but, I, I, I've, I've, like, I've read the book and all that, so I'm very close to it. So maybe that was one of the reasons why I was like, oh, come on, Spielberg, you could have done better with that. You know, I know he modernized the, the premise and everything, but it could have been like slightly, you know, closer to yeah. the source material. I, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm talking trash about War of the Worlds either. It's got some real good quality stuff in it. It was shot on Fujifilm. Ah, uh, yes. Possibly the most important thing about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, but uh, Matt? Minority Report is a movie that has flaws. And I have seen the flaws. Uh, I know the flaws. It's still a freaking masterpiece. You're talking about a movie... That I, I mean, it is not simple. I, I, I in in a lot of in a weird way, uh, it, it's the best used uh, use of a MacGuffin in cinema history that I can think of. But beyond that, I mean, it deals with really basic but poignant strong ethical concepts uh, around free will and uh, uh, determinism and uh, due process and, you know, uh, you you know, like, I I mean, I, I think there's an underlying issue that's really important now when it comes to, like, okay, well, Outcome is we don't have any murders. Process is we might actually be imprisoning a lot of people who are innocent. And there's a brilliance in the first, like, 15-some minutes of the movie. I'll I'll probably save it until uh, uh, the spoiler section. Uh, 
that really steel mans one side. And then we spend two and a half hours with this character going through this process and realizing that the steel man is actually probably not that strong. And that maybe, just maybe, the process matters more than the outcomes. Yeah, the movie came out in 2002. I was still pretty young when I saw this movie for the first time. I, and just like most movies that I saw when I was as young as I was, you know, I, you know, I, I just kind of enjoyed the visuals. I enjoyed the, the action sequences and so on and so forth. Uh, I've already, I mean, I've always had a bit of an attention span, so like the two and a half hour runtime didn't really phase me. But um, yeah, as I've watched it again and again and again and again and again, as I've gotten older and read more and I, I mean, honestly, I think there's a possibility that this movie is actually smarter than Steven Spielberg. I think that there's a possibility that there's more to this than the filmmakers actually intended. That's how I feel about uh, Munich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and, and I mean, that's saying a lot because I love Steven Spielberg. I, I mean, you know, greatest living filmmaker, but you know, uh, uh, that's where I stand again. There are flaws like, you know, John Anderton kicks out the window of a car and then he crawls out. And for some reason, the window in the car is still there, uh, or, uh, and there, there's another flaw in the movie that's a little bit more relevant to the plot that we might bring up later on that isn't, uh, it's still a problem, but, you know, it's just so good that I don't fucking care. But yeah, this is like a, this isn't come and see. I'm not going to give it a 10, but I'm going to give it like a nine and a half. <clears throat> Yeah, I guess I could see how um how maybe in a similar way to um to the dark knight maybe that's sort of your your reaction to it is that it's such a solid movie and a, a solid movie watching experience that it's that it almost overtakes any mild errors yeah. that are that are there and maybe for the three of us, it's, you know, for me, the way I look at it, it's a better than average science fiction movie. So that's why I, and I really liked it when I first watched it. So I give it a nine, but, but really a more than average science fiction movie is an eight. Uh, a, uh, an amazing science fiction is a nine and 2001 A Space Odyssey is a 10. You know, that's <laughs> pretty much like the, the way it goes for me with sci-fi. Um, but, um, 
yeah, so so that's why I think it makes sense. A more mature vote for me would would be like an eight, just because of some of the flaws. Because because it's not the Dark Knight. Because I rated the Dark Knight a nine, um, but it's close. It's it's close. It's not bad. It's I it wasn't my top ten Spielberg movies. So yeah, I mean it's better than it's better than the Dark Knight, but. Uh, I hey, mean, hey, take it easy there, guys. <laughs> okay. I don't know about that. I don't know what to tell you. Like, because, because, uh, um, I mean, it's definitely, it's maybe your your opinion alone there, because nobody's putting it in the pantheon of, uh, you know, greatest action movies ever made, like you know, T two and uh, Dark Knight, and uh, even I would say like you know, Fury Road. I feel like yeah, a lot of people would consider it a better movie. I wouldn't, but you know, as in the pantheon of of you know big budget action movies. Yeah, I feel like those are all very odd movies to compare it to. But yeah, no, yeah, I just I, mean I, like um, as an I get, action, I get what you're saying. Yeah. action oriented because it's it's a it's a fast paced action oriented big budget movie. So and and it's actually not that dissimilar from the Dark Knight as far as its complexity. It's like the the themes it's struggling with and and yeah, I, it's I don't think it's a bad comparison. Uh, oh, I mean, it it's it, it it's a rough comparison, but in terms of the concepts that it's, that it's dealing with, um, I think that Minority Report. Actually, I think it deals with higher and more complex ideas than, you know, say The Dark Knight. And it has less morally reprehensible answers than The Dark Knight. Even though I disagree with some of the answers in Minority Report. I, I mean, I just enjoy... I, I enjoyed the exploration of the ideas, and this is probably where we should get into spoilers. I was going to say, we better get yeah. into spoilers, because I'm just scratching my head yeah. at this point. Before uh, <laughs> you... Uh, yeah, Matt explodes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I guess we can lead into spoilers. I mean, I will say about The Dark Knight, it's, of course, like, themes, like, you can't really... Like, the merit of a movie is not just based on its themes, because some movies have, like... You know, very very um, interesting themes, but the movie just doesn't hold up. I think what's special about movies like like T two and The Dark Knight is is they they sort of like uh, set a tone for like oh my god, this is like a new kind of movie. Like I, I didn't I didn't know this was possible uh, type of thing. Um, uh, I think T two more so just the special effects and and you know just the and and just that it all came together like better than expected almost <laughs> i feel like and just made schwarzenegger such a massive star but but i, I feel like the dark knight just just made you believe in movies again <laughs> you know in the power of movies like oh my god you can actually make a movie this powerful and make it an action movie and make it a you know uh, a superhero movie and and all that stuff. I, I don't think Minority Report does that. I, maybe it comes close to doing it for science fiction, but to me it would be more like a, a movie like Moon or Ex Machina. Those would be science fiction movies that you know made me believe like, oh my God, we can have amazing science fiction. You know, but 
but yeah, that would be my personal opinion. But but Minority Report comes close. Well, I, I mean, Moon and Ex Machina, uh, not to uh, spoil any future possible episodes for us. I mean, those are 9.5s for me, oh. <laughs> at least. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, I mean, science fiction is one of those spaces in cinema that seems to go underappreciated so far as I can tell. And, you know, especially bold science fiction, you know, like Star Trek, like not like pre Jar Jar Abrams, Star Trek science fiction in cinema where they're, is something to be said about modern society told in a futuristic universe or an alternate universe or something like that uh, and done well? I mean that I mean that's in a different stratosphere of well uh, of let's save it for the ex machina episode. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, yeah, you know, might be a double episode there, X Machina and Moon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> we need to talk about Ava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, uh, yeah I would want to hear from Andrew yeah. because uh, because I watched this movie now uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, with spoilers, like what are some of the more specific things? Because uh, in case I forget any. <laughs> First of all, I just want to say, if y'all are doing a double episode on Ex Machina and Moon, like, definitely please count me in. Especially if you all start talking about Star Trek, because that's that's deep to my heart. That's 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 as sci-fi as it gets for me. Um, <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's interesting. We start bringing out these titles, Dark Knight, and and, and, uh, and talking about Star Trek and some of, some of these other great pieces of sci-fi. And I think it helps to highlight some of, some of the things I did not appreciate about Minority Report. I, I did feel the story is simple. I know it's I did I know it's touching on a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different political and philosophy topics that are I, I feel are, are important, Matt, and you know I definitely think are even more relevant today, in the light of uh, all the debate about uh, how police behave, and some of the stories that have been highlighted in the media over the last few years. But at the same time, it's it feels like a very narrow, narrowly scoped movie. You know, for I think about, I'd say two thirds of it was totally from, pretty much for the most part, I think from John Anderton's point of view, with a few little sidelines with, with Colin Farrell. And, you know, the whole thing is primarily a detective story. It's hyper-focused on, on, on that. And it does feel like it becomes a very different movie once Anderton realizes or finds out that he's, being framed, um, you know, with the idea of protecting the whole precog program and helping it go go national, and then it, it becomes a different thing. You know, you start to experience more of a conspiracy theory movie, and he's now tasked with uh, trying to. It doesn't necessarily even try to rescue this this kid <laughs> until until the end of it, but it's it's more about him, like. You know, he, he gets captured, he takes the fall, and then, you know, his his wife saves him. And, you know, there were a lot of things that just, it just felt like a, a very different movie to, in, in that final act. 
And I definitely get that they were trying to make the ending happier than what the original version of the story was and what some of the earlier concepts within the, in the screen in the screenwriting process. But it just felt like everything was very neatly bundled at the end of the movie, aside from the fact that there are a bunch of potential murderers set free with the police watching them closely. Um, so the ending definitely felt flat just because it was so tightly wrapped up. And you know, I just I just felt like there could have been more meat on the bone, a bit more subtext, a bit more darkness and grit. You know, I definitely think they made certain choices to keep it underneath that PG-13 umbrella as opposed to like what they might've done when, when it was R. And even though I felt the movie was compelling, I just, it just felt like, you know, there, there could have been a little bit more to it, a little more subtext, a little, a little more, a little, bit, a little bit more to explore, I think, from a story perspective. Incidentally, there is a theory that after uh, John gets haloed, everything else in the movie is actually just playing out in his own head and it didn't actually happen. That would make a certain amount of sense. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not backing that up as uh, where I stand, but uh, people have raised that as a, you know, as a possibility that, you know, it, it was just, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, you know, the... Uh, he does the, say like, that morning, Yeah, you know, all your dreams come true and so on and so forth and everything's going to wrap up and, uh, you know, everything, you know, uh, you know, it, you know it, it's it's kind of a rush and so on and so forth. And so, I, I mean, it, it it's at least plausible that the end of the movie is just all playing in John's head while he's still haloed and, you know, incarcerated and so on and so forth. But, um, I, again, I, I don't ascribe to that theory, but it's just a theory that I've heard and I thought it was relevant to bring up. So, yeah. That is interesting. I just wonder if, um, there would need to be some sort of hint uh, or like callback to that line to, to for anybody to read that into it. I, I mean, with how much I read into the end of uh, um, leaving Las Vegas, I, 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 I mean, I think that there's actually less to read into uh, to the end of Minority Report, but uh, 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 that's another story. But um... <laughs> but the but the drill on it, like if if that's the case, then uh, so what was the motivation of um, uh, what's his face? You know the the, Mark, the boss the boss guy, Omar uh, Burgess. What? Omar <laughs> Burgess, played by Max von Sydow. Yeah, Max von Sydow. Yeah, I was like, I don't recognize that name. It's like the, the character's name, I, the, the actor I know. Uh, yeah, Max von Sydow. Um, the because um, why would he? I know he set him up. There's the whole setup thing to make him think he's like ch chasing after the guy who took his kid. Um, like, wh why would he yeah. lock him up? I, I guess because he was bound to discover the flaws in the system. 
no, no. It was because he, because so, Tom Cruise's character found, was in, looking into the mother. Oh, the, the mother. The yeah. female precog. Yeah. He yeah. discovered, you know, that the memory was deleted. And so he was trying to look into her, her murder or her death. But I felt like that was something, you know, it, it was kind of reiterated towards the end in Tom's big moving speech at the end. But um, yeah, that, that one felt a little, a little weak for me, honestly. Uh, I mean, by the way, I, I just got to give a shout out to Samantha Morton. I mean, uh, that that is like, I mean, it, it, she's like the female Gary Oldman. I mean, she's freaking amazing. <laughs> Would you go that far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like, let me just say this real quick. Hold on, hold on. Okay, I have absolutely nothing against Samantha Morton. Um, I think she is very talented, and I think this is probably her best performance I've seen. But I mean, how many great performances has she really given? I'm looking at her <laughs> filmography. It's like, like you know, I, I've seen about four or five of them and i know some of that's on me but i'm just saying like you just said gary oldman <laughs> like yeah that would be a, part of that like is not just, or, uh, part of that something. is not just his his superior acting quality to every other actor on the planet some of it is his prolificness and his you know his his, his filmography and everything you know, i mean there's a lot that goes into saying that you know what i mean yeah, I, I think we should do a bonus episode um, that, or maybe in the Gary Oldman episode we're planning on doing, we should we should do an episode as like the female Gary Oldman. Yeah, I'm sure we're gonna get butchered for that. Absolutely, <laughs> politically incorrect. I, I mean, like I, I mean, she was fantastic in The Walking Dead. She was fantastic in The Whale. She was, I mean, she's, uh, she was fantastic in in America. She was, I mean, like. She's a she's a fucking chameleon. I mean, she I, I don't. She did look very different in the whale. I just saw that on the plane too. Yeah, she did look. She looked very different in John Carter. Yeah, right. She's she's just great. Like, I mean, I that, don't, that was I, that was a joke, by the way. She played an alien. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if people saw that movie, Jason, they would get your joke. People should see that movie because it's a great movie. But Which movie? Because I, I, I don't think uh, that's not. Let, no, no, let's not go to. Uh, moving on. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> moving on. Um, shout out Tim Riggins, Friday Night Lights, deep in my heart. <laughs> um, oh, the fake Friday Night Lights, not the the real one. Uh, the TV show Friday Night Lights is made by the same director. Asshole. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you watched the, the first season happened. with me. You got emotional. You liked it. Don't, yeah, don't be all like <laughs> I, I mean, you got Billy Bob Thornton playing Coach Taylor. Like, how can you yeah. compete with that? <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, okay. Anyway, yeah, we're, but we're, I, both, I, I both of them are to... excellent. They just make me nauseous to watch them. <laughs> uh, so, Jason, um, I, I'm in, I'm interested to hear like, what did you feel this time around that uh, you know didn't hit the mark? quite okay um i'm afraid that if i talk about the stuff that i didn't like about this movie i'm gonna come off sounding like a little too negative like uh why did i give it such a good grade 
you know, good, good, good uh, uh, opinion of it, you know. So let me just say, first of all, a few positive things. Okay. I, I love this movie. And it's already been said. Everyone's already pretty much said all the good things. You know, I mean, the cast is so good. Um, Colin Farrell is excellent. And, um, is you know, he, he is excellent. I love him in this movie. I love him in most movies. But I, now, uh, anyway. He's, but, he's not amazing. Uh, he's solid, I thought he was not. I, I thought it, he was everything like, that the felt, role needed. It felt very early in his career. I think if he were to It was very early now, in his career. I think if he did the part now, he'd make some different choices. There's well, one I, scene in particular that stands out where uh, they're in the car factory and he's getting and Tom Cruise gets away and he's making this angry face and he does this thing where he punches his hand and he punches a fist into his other hand. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's that's a very amateurish choice there, Colin. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, not... go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, throw it in there. Also, I, I felt like generally his character was just way too sophisticated for his own good. Not to mention that he got into the whole, like, essentially the Tom Cruise role so quickly there once he was out of the picture. Like, he's moving the the thing, the screens, and he's doing all the, the scanning. Like, uh, I felt like it was a bit, like, out of nowhere that he's so capable of doing something like that he doesn't have any training in. Don't you feel that that's very appropriate considering that Max von Sydow is warning um, uh, Tom Cruise in during their, their little discussion in the first act. And he says, watch out for that guy, show him around, give him whatever he wants, but watch him carefully. He wants your job. And, and, oh, I see. So maybe and, he's gotten some training. Right. And uh, Hinneman, Hinneman in that, uh, long scene in her uh, um, like arboretum and everything, you know, don't trust the, you know, who wants your job and everything, uh, clearly referring to Danny Whitwer. So, like, you know, people know about Danny Whitwer. People know about Colin Farrell's character uh, as being somebody who's, like, pressing against John Anderton's role in this whole thing so yeah i i think that's actually pretty well established but isn't this whole purpose as um like he comes in there to auditor to 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 try and like make sure that the system is functional really and doesn't have flaws like because it isn't like the whole because he's like an fbi agent so he's trying to sort of like um Mm-hmm. You know, right. be a counter I, to it. So the whole thing is weird. So he, I could be wrong. It? Why is he so Gil, critical of everything? I, I could be wrong, but my my under my take on that aspect of what you're discussing right there is uh is rooted in what he says to Tom Cruise, where he says he's there to to find flaws in the system, and then he says there are no flaws, and he says something about the flaws are are human or something like that. Meaning mm-hmm. he does believe that it's a flawed system. He is. He has been sent there to find those flaws, but I think his motivation is to is is based in his theory, which is the flaws are these people running this thing, and I can do the job better. Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I didn't. I, I didn't read that too much, and I, and I guess those couple of lines of throwing like he wants your job, he wants your job, just never landed with me because the whole setup of the character 
is that he's trying to shut this thing down. Like it seems like everybody's trying to shut this program down, and then they're they're Max von Zido and Tom Cruise are just trying to show that it is functioning well. Uh, so so it was very strange. It's just a very mixed way to approach that character. Like just do one or the other. Don't be confusing. But but that's fine. It's a complicated movie. He's well, a anyway. He's not going to be consistent. Yeah, no, no. I'm not saying that it's not. Uh, like you said, the the lines of dialogue were there. So I just, I guess, I kind of yeah, missed them in the shuffle. No, I, I mean, I, I think that basically Danny Whitworth's character is a guy who is ambitious. He wants to uh, move his career forward, but a, a large part of moving his career forward is looking at this experiment that's in place. And uh, again, basically auditing it, and uh, you know, reporting to his superiors and uh, flexing the higher government muscles over it. Uh, I mean, he's he's an agent of the state, and you know, that's basically how agents of the state work. <laughs> but isn't that a higher also... position than Tom Cruise's position? Why does he need to aspire to something lower than where he is? Um, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Tom Cruise is a local cop. Like in no, the no, 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 no. district, like Tom Colin Cruise Carroll is, is in... that That's about to go national. Yeah, it's Tom about Cruise to go... is Oh, the, that's is what the, it is, because yeah. it was about to go national. He's the chief mm-hmm. of, of this new high tech and highly well at least in the in the eyes of the public highly successful um you know anti crime you know uh thing <laughs> program i guess yeah. yeah anyway uh getting back to the question that, that, uh, that, that's all again into one city it, uh, yeah exactly at the time and it's about to go national right so yeah. there, there there's huge push for people well, to... one thing I would say before I forget, because we're on that subject, is uh, that's also bothered me. I, it's tough for me to believe that there is zero crime, like uh, that they got it down to zero murders, because there's only three precogs and there's only Tom Cruise. I don't see them stopping all murders happening at the same time. Like a lot of big cities have like multiple murders happening at the same time. It's 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 a bit far fetched that they can get it down to zero, but I get it that for the plot or for the story to make it convincing, they needed to have that as like that's the reason why they're going to go national because they have zero murders. But but I I kind of don't buy that that's possible even given this technology. Like you know it's like Gotham. You know the Batman can't stop all the crime. You know well He's my, one guy. my thought on that is that I think it it's it's okay. For them to depict it as it's been this successful, and at this point in time, the only um, balls, the only the only murders that they that the machine spits out uh, are murders of crimes of passion, you know, um, where nobody thought about it ahead of time, um, and that even those have dropped to such a low amount that they can handle it and stop them ahead of time. Uh, I, I'm okay with that concept. The only thing that I wish they had done is in the in the the, the very few scenes in the movie where he's talking to um, what's her name the lady in the in the greenhouse and yes. Max von Sydow. Yeah, oh, it, it, 
Yeah, when he's speaking to the people who created the thing, and they they there's a few scenes where they're kind of talking about the old days, you know, and it is also um, Tim Blake Nelson has a moment where he talks about how old the program is, how many years they've been doing it. And he kind of refers when he's asking about the murder, he says, Oh, it's one of the golden oldies or something like that. You know, anytime they're discussing it, I wish they would allude to the fact that when the program started, that they were getting so many murders at any given point in time that they definitely didn't get them all. You know, I'm okay with when the movie starts, they're at this point of success where it's like, we get all of them now. We, we, we only ones we ever really get are the crimes of passion. So it's a fast, fast, fast kind of business. And we almost never get pre premeditated murder anymore. But uh, for years, let's say before the public realized, Oh, we can't murder anyone anymore. Otherwise this is going to happen to me. I'm going to get stuck in this, this little tube and I'll be imprisoned my whole life kind of thing. Like, I, I just feel like, you know, they, it would have been nice to kind of just allude to the fact that there was a growing pains time where they, you know, where they, they didn't get all of them. And they definitely, some people did get away with murder or, or because they just couldn't get to all the, the, the crime that was, that was happening, you know? Uh, I mean, the, I mean, there was that sequence at the beginning where, you know, they had that advertisement of, you know, murders reaching epidemic proportions and, you know, uh, pre-crime pre coming in. And I don't think they said, like, and immediately. Oh, no, no, uh, I, I, I think that, I think you're right. They, I, 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 I mean, you're a human being with a brain. You can make that, uh, you can make that transition, right? You know, right, no, no, and that's what I did. That's what how I believe it happened. I'm just saying, yeah. I feel like the movie would be stronger if there was a way for them to have kind of maybe illustrated it a little more or something. I don't know what I want. I'm not sure what I want. I'm just saying that that's how I feel. I was going to say, they did say in the movie that they've gone a solid six years without a single murder. So the point that Jason's <laughs> making, I think, is and to you too, Gil, where you know that they don't always make it would be would have made it more interesting. Um, like if let's say for example in that first murder that they that they depict in the movie, you know if they had just missed it, it you know it made it made made have been might have been a more interesting choice. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, or at least just go for you know from number one, you know statistic in the nation or number five, they go down to fifty, like they're the like the lowest crime and and all 50 states or something. I don't know. Like it, it could have been slightly more realistic than just zero. Uh, I think to make it convincing that it's like a good system. Or... No, that's bullshit. I mean, I mean, art is about hyperbole. You, you go into this and, you know, like, and that's the brilliance of the first scene is that you show the system working perfectly. And I mean, right down to the finest detail where Howard Marks is about to stab, he's like mid stabbing motion when they come in and stop him. He was going to do it. You know that he was about to kill his wife. You know that the system worked in this case. So it is a steel man 
showing like, okay, there's this technology that at some point we may have, and it, it works. It worked entirely in this situation. Now let's deal with the actual philosophy of whether or not we should actually accept this kind of technology, whether or not we should actually accept this into our lives and livelihoods and, uh, you know, and trust it with, uh, it, I, I think it dealt with this situation perfectly. Like, okay, let's get rid of murder. Like, this is a world where we get rid of murder. Isn't that the perfect consequentialist philosophical, moral situation? Okay, but the process, is the process morally defensible? That's what the movie is dealing with. And that's why it has to go full-on steel man. Why it has to show you Howard Marks in full stab mode just before he's about to kill his wife and the precogs being entirely right. That's why it has to show you a city that has been free of murder for several years. That's why it has to show you this, you know, seemingly utopian society because we can then deal with the problem of the process that leads to the consequence. But the, uh, but isn't the whole point minority report is the fact that there were these reports that there was inconsistencies. Yeah, but that's later. Yeah, exactly. So, and and this takes me back to like Matt yet again, putting a lot of focus on movies that have to do with freedom where they mostly have to do with just the flaw in the system I don't think that this movie is more struggling with the moral issue that, you know, is it morally right to stop someone before they do the act? Uh, It actually might be if you can 100% guarantee that that's always the case. But we know based on the minority reports that it is not. Therefore, because there's the slight possibility that they might be wrong and he wouldn't, you know, uh, take the, 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 you know, uh, end up killing his wife, like bringing down the, the scissors or whatnot or whatever situation. That's why it's morally wrong. Uh, and then you can debate maybe outside of this movie that even in a perfect system that has no flaws and is never wrong, um, if, if it's the right thing to do. But but this specific movie is, uh, the reason why it's wrong is because there's inconsistency in the predictions. Uh, and, but, and also the other aspect of that, that they discover in the movie, which is that if you are aware on some level of what your future is supposed to be, that then you have a choice to change it. Uh, yeah, n- not to mention that, I mean, that is someone a criminal if you stop them from committing the crime? Yeah, you that's know, a whole exactly. other aspect worth discussing, like, too. Like, you know, if if we have knowledge, because uh, the whole free will thing is is if, if we have knowledge of what people are going to do and we stop them before they become essentially criminals, because especially crimes of passion, these are people that are not generally dangerous for the general public. 
they're just uh it's a crime of passion it has to do with the the you know the the subject of that passion um so is it the right thing to do to imprison them now that's like all, a whole other debate and it's interesting that this movie plays with all these things but at its core the main issue with with what's going on in the movie is that it's an imperfect system so you, so you can't do that it's so like 20 minutes ago what i was trying to get at was to say that there's a lot of really good things in this movie that i like aside <laughs> from just colin farrell but um and, and uh the uh there are some stuff that kind of bothers me a little bit um they're like i said at the beginning they're not huge things i don't think they ruin the movie at all but um like i feel like on some level someone kind of mentioned something about this the implausibility stuff but uh just to throw a few things out there um this is in no particular order um i think their hologram technology sucks like if you were not taking drugs and trying to adjust your state of mind by looking at old family photos the way that he does, um, that that tech is so bad looking, you'd be better off watching a TV screen that we have today. Like 4K is way better than that. <laughs> that thing looks like crap. You know, um, there's movies that have depicted hologram technology where it's still supposed to be being developed, you know, and it's not quite like uh, a holodeck, you know, it's not quite perfect or whatever. That still, when I see it, I go, I could see us adopting that tech and then trying to make that better because it's three dimensional. This was like, dude, you're better off with a flat screen. That looks awful. <sighs> I, I, I mean, no. No. Okay. Second. But at least you can the, touch it. Not really. He could try to, but you anyway. can touch a screen. Yeah. 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 So the um the ribbon freeway, um, that is probably one of the best examples I could go to if I was trying to discuss movie situations and movie tropes and things like that and talk about a, a futuristic thing in a movie that was there to to give you an action scene rather than to be plausible because like I kind of get how that could be a nice bridge between the American car system that we have nowadays and like futuristic mass transit. It's like halfway in between, you know, it's kind of nice and it gives a really great action scene, but why I have to ask in a futuristic DC where we have these gigantic high rise buildings that have to be at least a hundred stories tall. Why was the, fr the freeway system running above it? I, I got to know that. Like he gets in his car, starts driving and he's on the freeway on whatever level he's on. Now I can understand maybe he lives on a high rise. So maybe he's high up, but then he makes a few turns and suddenly he's vertical because the, the ribbon freeway went vertical along the side of a building. Then the action scene starts. He busts out of the car and starts jumping from one car to another. He's doing this for like 45 seconds. How slow are these things going? I can get down. I could get in an elevator and go down a building that fast. Like this scene keeps going and going. This has to be a two, like a, at least 100 to 150 story tall building why was the freeway going all the way to the top of it 
doesn't make any sense. And if it was going all the way to the top, I can see maybe if it was just the cars for the people who lived in that building. No, that the freeway was at the top level, and then it just happened to go down that building. That doesn't make any sense. There's like a, a ribbon that's like what, like 800 feet up in the air, just moving or like why? That doesn't make any sense. So, the, yeah. the most the most implausible part of that scene is that DC is actually going to change its zoning laws in the next 40 years. That too. That too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> DC is not a vertical city the way that uh the way that like New York already is. It's actually in the law. I think uh you're not allowed to build anything taller than what a, a third of the height of the Washington Monument in <laughs> DC. So <laughs> I, I mean, I lived in D.C. for four years, so uh, I mean, yeah. It, no, it's yeah. you're Matt. You're absolutely right. And having that you live there, or being that you live there, that's that's the kind of criticism I definitely take to heart, and I, I believe that you understand. It's very similar to when when I watched um, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and they get to the Vegas scene, and they start showing the futuristic hotels, and then they show Luxor that has been added onto as this like new super pyramid but the old pyramid still underneath and i just laughed because i was like that piece of shit hotel is still going to be around no no <laughs> if, if anything is still around it's not going to be luxor let me just tell you that much but anyway uh um, yeah i mean i do think uh, that you touch on a good point like is the the action scenes are slightly over the top like the the thing with the cars they're like smooth glass. There's like nowhere to grab and they're moving at like super speeds. There's no way he's like holding on to any of these cars. He would have fallen off of them a long time ago. And, and there's a similar thing with the, when they come at him with the jetpacks and stuff. Mm -hmm. That whole scene is really awkward and they go flying through like different floors and different like then there's like some comic relief there with the... It's just uh, tonally, like some of the action scenes, like I, I just don't know why it was necessary to go there to tonally. So um, th those are kind of some of the issues I had with it. Um, I just wanted to say before we go too much further, uh, I, um, a couple of things. I, I find it interesting that um, that, you know, one of you guys, I think it was Andrew, was saying that it's got a lot of, like, kind of noir detective type of feel to it. Uh-huh. Um, and I agree. Um, to me, no, when I, I think I, of this I, movie... I uh-huh for Andrew. Sorry. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, I, I think this movie, it's a strength and a weakness, but... Um, Okay, so I'm trying to think of how to say this and really, really express what I'm trying to feel here, what I'm saying here. Um, this is a movie that, like Matt said, has a pretty high concept, but really what it is, um, it kind of devolves into this in the second act into uh, like a Tommy Lee Jones style uh, fugitive movie. It's just a futuristic version of a Tommy Lee Jones future uh, fugitive movie. You know, I mean, it's it's we've we've all seen it a hundred times before. Well, not a hundred, but let's say at least seven times before in in other movies where you know there someone is falsely accused of murder, and the only thing, and then they become a fugitive, 
and then the old since nobody's on their side they have to solve their murder while avoiding the authorities you know that's basically the the, the plot of the the middle third of the movie pretty much um just like you know the fugitive just like u.s marshals just like double jeopardy and it's impossible to 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 some extent perhaps but um i what i love about this movie is that it takes that and as matt alluded to utilizes i'm not going to say the best but certainly a very good MacGuffin it with the title of the movie uh minority report because again if you're listening to this at this point you should definitely have seen the movie spoilers and everything but you know he he gets to the point where he does the thing, you know, they set up what he needs to do. He needs to break back into his own headquarters, get to uh, the girl precognitive and download um, the, uh, you know, download the, 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 the minority, minority report, report. Uh, so that, yeah. so that he can prove his innocence just like all those movies I just said, only in a high-tech sci-fi sort of way, right? And he does all of this. He goes through so much. He goes through in what is, in my opinion, the best scene in the movie, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, but uh, he goes through so much to achieve this. And then when he's getting it, they, they, they find out about him. So he has to go on the run with the girl. Then he gets to the high-tech guy who helped him out in the past, and he actually is able to download the thing. Rufus and P. Riley. Lo- I'm sorry? Uh, the, that's the name of the guy, Rufus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Riley. Rufus. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but then, as as Matt said, you know, <laughs> big MacGuffin moment. He turns to the girl, and all they're, record, all they're able to record from her is him gunning down the guy, just like the, the other two twins, you know, witnessed. He's like, down. where? Yes. He's like, where's my minority report? And she's like, I, you don't have one. We all saw the same thing. You fucking killed this guy. <laughs> you know? And so, and, and suddenly the whole movie shifts when that happens. And I love that because this movie, like I said, in the hands of a lesser person could have basically been a cheesy sci-fi, you know, fugitive movie. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the film, it really turns into something entirely different that I love. My, uh, but to bring up another problem, I agree with what, what Andrew was kind of touching on. I think, I don't know how, how they would have done it because the movie's so focused on um, Tom Cruise. So I don't know how it would have been done. I, I can't imagine anything that I would have done that would have made this movie better. I can't think of any changes or anything like that, but it's odd to me that um, Tom Cruise's wife plays such a pivotal role in the third act of the film and isn't even introduced until 10 minutes before she becomes relevant. And that is a weird thing to me because the actress is so good. The character is so good. All of it works. I don't have any issue with it, but it feels weird. Like she's so important. It feels like she should have been around in some way, at least introduced in some way. And I don't know how I would have done it. 
I just uh, to, to me it's technically a little wasn't the, did, the did, movies. Did, did you forget yeah. that scene with Colin Farrell at the beginning where you know, like coffee? Do you want sugar? Oh, I I don't have sugar. Do you want uh, you know like you know? I, I mean, not good enough. That, not good enough. That, I mean, that that was like more than an hour before the third act. Not good enough. No, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I actually I, thought I, she. Uh, I thought she died because they they mix her in with the scene with the kid, and I'm like, did she die? And I've seen this movie before. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> well, is she dead? Is like the kid? Like something happened to the two of them? You know, like it's. I, uh, I I will admit I had forgotten about the Colin Farrell scene. I love the 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 sugar coffee thing. It is a good interaction that they have with each other. I just and actually that's a really good scene because it also establishes that location in a good way. Actually, uh, I, this this might be a good segue to my biggest criticism of the movie. Okay. Because during that scene, uh, his ex-wife uh, refers to John Anderton's apartment, like his current apartment, as that was our apartment. And if you could just cut that line out, it would make abundantly more sense when Agatha was in their house talking about how much love there was in the house and, you know, like, uh, you know, their life with uh, with Sean and everything like that. If she said, you know, that was our apartment that implies that they were living in that uh, apartment with Sean. Yeah. And that's the problem. She, well, there might've, it might've been their summer home. On, Agatha is in the house. Yeah. But like, like Gil just said, they actually say um, that that house that they're in was their summer home. Oh, uh, holy shit. Did I miss that? Oh, failure, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm <laughs> disappointed in you, Matt. Come on. Of all the things. <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah uh, I don't remember. I, I can't remember who said it. I want to say maybe it was the Colin Farrell scene. I don't know. Someone is talking to her and she says something to the effect of, yeah, we used to come here back then, but not any, obviously not anymore because they're not together anymore and so on and so forth. And the kid died. Uh, okay. Uh, well, maybe I'll rewatch it again tonight and, uh, you know, uh, kick myself in the shame. I was going to say that uh, yeah. I, I liked uh, you know, when you guys were talking about the, the noir detective story aspect of it, I was going to say um, I love in movies when this happens and it's done well, but um, <laughs> it just, I was so sad. I, like I said, I hadn't seen this movie in over 15 years, so I didn't remember every detail of it, but uh Man, Colin Farrell gets the he gets the Kevin Spacey LA confidential treatment. You know, I mean he is he is do he is introduced as a competitor and as a a problem, as a source of conflict to our main character. And halfway through the movie, even though he's a source of conflict, he is a moral character. He's a cop doing his job and he is trying to do the right thing and solve the crime and find out who's behind all of this stuff. And he does, and he discovers everything, and he's right on the, he he tells the audience what's happening because he has figured it all out. He lays it out, and Christopher Plummer's like, You got me. 
Bam! You're dead. Oh, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I thought it was Christopher that's, Plummer, too. That, I'm sorry. No, I, I, I knew it was Max von Sydow. I just I do that every now and then. They're they're both so great. Um, but yes, uh, wow. And he just, just, uh, just like in LA Confidentials, like the perfect scene to give the audience everything they need for the rest of the movie. And he's like, oh, guess what? Pre-crime's not working anymore. Boom, you're dead. <laughs> this is great. Such a great yeah. scene. I totally forgot about it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I mean, that repetition too of um, Danny Wetwer, you know, Colin Farrell's character just kissing that cross on his fist. Like, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, before his fist fight with uh, John Anderton at the beginning and, you know, just as he's about to be murdered. <laughs> yeah is kind of poignant <laughs> so uh yeah andrew you haven't talked in a while uh well i was gonna i wanted to say a couple of positive things uh about the movie and highlight two of my favorite scenes the first of course is the greenhouse scene um i don't recall the actress's name but you know it was, it was a very exposition scene that she made a lot of fun and especially with improvising that that kiss that she gives to Anderton towards the end, I thought it was just hysterical. Uh, the other scene, and I I'm, can easily say it was my favorite scene in the entire movie. Yeah, is I, the know eye it's, I know it's transplant scene. Yep. Yeah. Peter yep. Stomer. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> Greatest scene in the a, whole movie. I was the, waiting for something to bring it up, but uh, yeah. that that whole sequence is trash. That's like one of the worst things for me in How the movie. How dare you! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh it's God. it's so like it doesn't make any sense what's going on there. Like that wait, wait, that wait, whole. Let's sequence. let's let Andrew finish what he likes. Yeah, yeah about but it, then, the then first finish. Well, I just love I just love it because it, it is so uh, over the top and it, it honestly does feel a bit out of place for the movie. But I know yeah, exactly. exactly. the movie. <laughs> you got the kind of cliche thing, like, oh yeah, I was a doctor, you ruined my life, and now you're at mercy. <laughs> and um and the uh his assistant too, I thought I thought she was pretty funny. So it was just it was just very over the top and it just made me made me laugh a lot and I appreciate it. And that guy, <laughs> he he's he's just fucking hilarious and everything that he no did. he's he's great for sure but 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 come on to me like the 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 cherry on the top was the eyes rolling down the the <laughs> slope and almost falling into the drain <laughs> come on <laughs> like it, it all of a sudden became a cartoon that whole, the whole movie to me like i it's just like was so unnecessary well uh, like for me, when, when, I, when I refer to it as my favorite end. sequence i i'm basically saying from the moment he gets to the to Peter Stomer's office or house or whatever that place is. I guess it's a house. Um, uh, I think it was like a, a, a motel that uh, I, my impression was that it was like a, a cheap motel and he's like moving around because he's doing all this on the black market. Maybe. And I mean, and he doesn't want a like solid address that he can get arrested for. Well, he's got but, an operating chair there, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, from the moment he gets there to the end of the spider scene is is my that's my favorite se- couple of sequences in the whole movie. Yeah, but, it, by, um, by the by the way, they absolutely stole that. Um, no, they didn't. Uh, it was just similar. No, no, no. Uh, for, uh, John Wick, the John yes. Wick 
sequence. John Wick, yeah. Yeah, they totally stole that from Minority. Similar. Oh, for the, the most recent one? Yes. Yeah. John Wick 4. Yeah. The the Dragon's Breath scene. Um, Gil, awesome. I, I wanted to bring up that scene because it will be a callback to one of our best episodes, I feel, that we've done. I could not remember this when we were having this previous episode. But I wanted, when I saw this, I almost jumped out of my seat because I remembered finally this was the movie, I one of several, but this was the main one. This was the scene in the movie I wanted to bring up when we were discussing The Princess Bride and Stardust. Because I... I this was the example I was trying to come up with. I think this movie does it a little bit better than Stardust did, but that whole discussion we had about the end of Stardust when there's so there's such similar scenes. You've got the heroes who need something from this shady character. They work out a deal with each other and then after the hero is in some way or another incapacitated and at their mercy, the whole mood shifts and it goes to, Oh my gosh, they're in peril. Now this person who, who is not a very moral person, this bad person can do whatever they want with them. And then surprise, surprise, they just actually uphold their end of the deal. Which is which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Not in Stardust and not in Minority Report. <laughs> I think it's fine. I I, I don't know. I, it's I think just, it's a movie. The, the movie would be fine without it. Like you can find some other eye doctor. It doesn't have to be someone from his past. Like there's a bit too many tropes for sure. There's the trope of like trying to like clear your own name. There's the trope of the, uh, you know, the the you could have. You could have toned these like points while still getting the points across. Like I, I don't think it was necessary. Like the movie has enough tricks and toys and and a lot of things in it, and it's very complex to add like these tonally just very off uh, subplots and stuff to get to where he needs to get. But. You know, it's it's fine. It's uh, much like the Dark Knight, like we said. I, I think you just kind of forgive them because, like Andrew said, it was enjoyable because it was over the top, or or because the it's just like it's fluff, but it gets us to where we need to get. Like you know, you he needs the eyes. I, I just feel like uh, you mentioned how like I could I can't see too many ways of like making this movie better. I can. There's all these tonally bad like sequences that didn't have to be that way tonally Spielberg was just trying to add some levity to it and I, I just don't think he's got the chops for it I, I think know? that the tone of this movie is a huge success um, I think there are a few moments that are that to me make me roll my eyes but I really think that it works um, this scene in particular the the one with Peter Stomare it is so incredibly unsettling. It's such a visceral scene to watch, and especially once he is well, anything with eyes for sure. Yeah. No, 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 but not just that. <laughs> the fact that I think most people feel the way I do. I've, I've had to go under several times for operations in my life. I think about seven now or something like that. If I, I, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to go back and think about all of them, but yeah, like um, several times. And 
I think most people have a pretty uh, healthy fear of, of being in that situation. And not only is this an operation he's about to get, it is a, it, it's shady. I mean, this is a, a, this is a bad situation he's in. And then as soon as he's doped up, he finds out that this guy has every reason to do him wrong. And, uh, but you know, I mean, I, I don't see any problem with the outcome. I think it's such a huge relief when he wakes up from the situation and he's groggy and whatever. And then to follow that with the, that again, hugely visceral moment where they are actually trying to be nice to him. They gave him a sandwich. They gave him some milk. They gave him this stuff. And it's like, Oh, it's so disgusting when he takes the rotten stuff instead, just purely by accident. <laughs> it's not like they did it on purpose to him. And, and then the ice bath scene is really good the spider and they keep flashing back to the alarm clock that they, the futuristic eight timer. And they're like, Oh, it's not, he still needs a couple hours. He's really pushing it. He might go blind. And the damn spider is there that the air bubble going up, like, which I just read in the IMDB trivia was something that, that Tom Cruise practiced so they could do practically rather than with CGI. Um, just, I really like the scene. And I, I even like the tone of going into it. Like I like how they, these, the, the police are throwing these little spider bots out so that they don't have to go door to door themselves. And the public responds with what I think is a very appropriate amount of outrage. Like everybody knows what these things are. They're not, it's not new to them and they're in a crappy neighborhood. So they've probably had this happen before. And this mother who has two small children are there and she grabs the smaller of the two and she holds it, the, the kid on her lap while the spider is like violating them basically. And she's yelling to the other one, just hold still. It's going to be over in a second, you know, and all this stuff like that. And it's, uh, it's so good. You know, the way that they play this whole thing out and it, like in this scene that Matt's talking about where uh, the camera is drifting over the ceiling from one room to another, from one unit to another. And there's these people who are, it, this is such a scummy neighborhood that the police have done this to them so many times. It's basically like, like in, in, in our world, when you're in a bad neighborhood and the, the, the ghetto birds are flying over, you know, the police helicopters are flying overhead. It's just such a normal occurrence after a while. You know, these people are in the middle of, having sex with each other when the spiders show up and they look annoyed. They're just like, all right, hurry up, scan me. And then they get right back to it. This other couple is in the middle of what could become a violent uh, domestic dispute. And the, the spiders start crawling on them and they're like, ah, and they get eye scanned. And then they immediately go, they don't skip a beat. They go right back to their argument. And the cops are certainly not going to do anything about them because they're small fries. They're small potatoes. They're not, they're not what they're there for, you know? All of these little things, some of it, it can be seen as kind of too comical. Like you said, the, the eye, the fall, the eyes falling down the drain and all this stuff like that. There are moments where it gets a little too silly, but I think in that scene, all those little moments of levity like are part of telling the story. And I just I don't know. I can't say enough about this scene. I think it stands out, but only because it's the best scene in the movie. And um I don't know. Yeah, I, I because also it can't doesn't say belong in it. <laughs> I, I I love Peter Stomare. I I don't know if I've ever seen a performance of his I didn't like. 
he's just so amazing. Uh, yeah, I think uh, an interesting question is like, because uh, if there's one blind spot that Spielberg has is humor and comedy. Like he just doesn't get that very well. I, I'm sure he had a few movies where he hit the right mark, but but he's just, uh, it would be interesting to like think back to any successful Catch comic Catch me if you movie. can. Eh, I don't like that movie. It's not great. Really? <laughs> Again, that. because it's a humorous it's movie, I, it just falls flat. I really think like Spielberg just, even though he's kind of a playful, I feel like Hook, maybe there was some yeah. humor there that worked, but that was more uh, Robin Williams yeah. probably nailed those oh, man. moments. And Dustin Bob Hoffman. Hoskins. Dustin Hoffman Bob Hoskins too. and Dustin Hoffman. All their scenes together make me laugh so much. The, the speech, Why Parents Hate Their Children, Still oh, that speech awesome. has affected me so more than I can tell you. <laughs> it, that speech is 80. It, no, it's probably at least 20% of the reason why I don't plan to have any kids. I'm not, I, I'm, you're yeah. laughing. I'm not laughing. And it's not the first when time I you saw... mentioned it on the podcast. I think I'm editing the no. episode. That Seriously? Here, so. Yeah. The, oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, I need to rewatch that movie just for that line. I guess I don't remember that line. <laughs> I, I didn't know I had ever talked about that, but that's interesting. Okay. Uh, uh, well, I, I, you know, Gil, one thing that you have to admit is that we did steal a shot from Minority Report when we were making uh, Reset. Well, yeah, it was one of the inspirations for the look of the movie. Yeah. So obviously, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, again, I'm not putting this movie down. Like I gave it an eight. So and I gave it a nine back when. But I'm just saying that, like, watching this movie now is like how like this stuff just doesn't belong in this movie. Like it's, I understand comic relief, but, but this was just plain silly. Well, since you guys have brought up the look, I'm I'm sure that um, Matt has a lot to say about, uh, about this movie, particularly uh, about the look of it and everything. But I just wanted to get your guys' opinion because um, I don't dislike the look of this movie. I did find it very interesting that this movie is so, I don't know. How would you describe it? It's, it's like, how would you put into words the way this movie looks? I mean, it's like, um, there's, yeah, it's, 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 it's just crazy. The look of it is so, um, noticeably, you know, um, surreal and everything, but, um, it's funny because to me, this movie, every scene of this movie looks the way a movie would traditionally do a flashback. And the flashback that's in the movie where he goes to the pool scene um, when he's, isn't the flashback when he's, when he's uh, waking up from the, um, yeah, it is. It's when he's waking up from the eye surgery. Just before he wakes up from it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's when he's sleeping, when he's sleeping from the eye surgery. Yeah. Yeah. So in the, in the flashback where we actually get to see what happened to his son, um, the flashback is, is shot totally normal. Yeah. So it's it's like he flip flopped the those those things. I find very interesting, but I'm just watching this movie. There's moments where it blows out so much, and I'm just like, Giannis, oh my god! <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm sure you guys had more to say about it. I just there's moments where I'm just kind of like, I like it, but I'm like, ah, it seems like a lot, you know. Uh, he does. Uh, yeah, I think we've mentioned also in the AI episode. He's got this thing of like shafts through windows where it's not completely necessary but maybe in this movie it worked more than others well uh i i kind of recall um working on uh lawan's 
both the previous and the uh, you know the full blown uh, full blown uh, all uh, every morning movies you know and uh, you know working in that set and just setting up a bunch of uh, just like putting a bunch of um, unbleached muslin on the windows and pushing as much light through it as I possibly could and just blowing it out. And I kind of feel like Janusz did a lot of that on this movie. I, I, I don't feel like that. I've read the, the American cinematographer article. He used diffusion and he, you know, yeah, he burned out the, the highlights and as far as I'm concerned, that's, Something that, uh, it's a defensible decision so long as you're shooting on film. If you shot this on digital, it would look like shit. I mean, even today, if you shot it on digital, it would look like shit. But, you know... Yeah, it is very much overexposed, so it wouldn't work very well. (laughs) This is funny. I did not read this ahead of time, but we're sitting here talking about this now. And in in the trivia, it says... Uh, Janusz Kaminski is a regular cinematographer, cinematographer for Steven Spielberg films. When Spielberg approached him for this film, he told him to create, and this is in quotes, the ugliest, dirtiest movie either of them had ever seen. <laughs> or had ever made, sorry. <laughs> Not seen. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. But, I, I, I mean, I... It, I mean, you can even see in um, the scene outside the house with John Anderton and his wife uh, when he realizes, holy shit, Anne Lively is Agatha's mother. Uh, there's actually a shot where you can see the texture of the diffusion that they were using on the lens. Weird. Due to the backlight, yeah, you can actually see that, <laughs> uh, and that's what was creating so much of the halation through the course of the movie, and so on and so forth. But you can actually see the texture of the of the diffusion in, in that shot if you uh, care to look. But uh, hmm. yeah. I care. I care. it's interesting i guess uh yeah it seems like except for matt who really loves this movie i feel like uh the three of us the rest of the three of us are kind of like feel the same way about it just in different parts which is interesting (laughs) i didn't think that we would disagree on the specific parts that were like good or not so good (laughs) did it did you guys um again this is another thing i don't have a problem with but i just kind of noticed uh, do you guys feel that it was uh, that this movie has a um, not a troubling but at least an oddly uh, large amount of product placement in it? There definitely, there definitely was. Well, I, I think that was part of the world building. I think it was too. That's why I don't have a problem with it. I just yeah. notice it. It's very noticeable. Yeah, I mean, like having a huge Aquafina, you know, like billboard right there on the uh, on the uh, uh, ultra 
you know, postmodern freeway or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it was all over the place. But you know, as far uh, as predicting the future, I, I definitely think that um, um, the whole ad thing is very similar to what we have nowadays. Where absolutely, they, they <laughs> like wherever you go, like the yeah. all the ads are directed at you specifically. Like in the yep. movie, they call him by his name, but but in our world, I feel like they're like so targeted to you, like and based on yeah. your searches and everything. So yeah. Also, um, we we already have malls where when you walk in, there's a like speaker system where it, like the whole mall around you can't hear it, but it, it'll like as you get to a certain point in the room, when you're walking in the entrance of a building, it can say something and it'll be like really quiet to someone 10 feet away, but it, like you can hear something directed at you, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I saw some clip on Facebook or something that uh, there was like a, an airport or something where if you go there, like it can detect you and then only show you your flight information and nothing else. Like something oh, weird wow. like that. Like, I don't know how it was something along those lines where like it's tailored to whoever the person that's looking. And then another person looks and like it's something different. Something that's different. interesting. Yeah. Um, hmm. Anyways, did, did you all read about the world building that kind of went into the movie and, and the strategy of Spielberg getting together a bunch of um, a bunch of people to design what a realistic future would look like? No. Yeah, I, I don't remember the specifics. Uh, I definitely wrote, came across it, I think, in the IMDb trivia or the Wikipedia, where he just had a meeting of the minds, a lot of different experts in their field. Uh, and it came to like designing every, every visual element of the movie, from the cars to the to, to everything, the phones, the little discs that they use. So I thought, it, I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty neat that he wanted to try to make it feel like it was a future we, we could actually have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg has always been meticulous, if nothing else. Uh, well, no, I mean, he's more creative than he is meticulous, but, you know. I, I feel like, if I didn't make this clear earlier, I feel like this movie... It, it is so good because in the hands of a lesser person, it would have just fallen apart or been very mediocre. And right. Spielberg managed to take, like I said, this movie that starts out as one thing and then, and kind of evolves into something else and then kind of lands at the end where it lands and says what it says. And it just, I think it works. And it's, uh, it, it's surprising to me that it works because of all the stuff we've been talking about, but I, I think that it, I think it works because of him mostly. Yeah. And I mean, to, to kind of allude to what I was saying before that, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure that um, the filmmakers were fully aware of the depth of what they were talking about. I mean, just that last scene with Max von Sydow where the precogs had already seen uh, uh, Lamar Burgess slash Max on Seidel shoot Tom Cruise slash John Anderton uh, and kill him. And John Anderton is talking to Lamar and just saying, uh, 
you know, no doubt the precogs have already seen this and, you know, you're in a dilemma right now, right? Because if you kill me, then you prove that precogs, uh, that pre-crime works. If you don't kill me, then you prove that we've basically been creating, uh, that we've basically been committing crimes against innocent people for the last, like, six years, right? Uh, he didn't say those exact words. I, I'm putting words in John Anderton's mouth and the writer and he so on. you had it memorized. Uh, I, <laughs> no, I, 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 I do. Ah. I, I do, and that's why I'm saying that I'm putting <laughs> words in his mouth. Uh, and Lamar decides to kill himself instead instead of John. And there's a profundity in that moment where the where the film is making a statement of there is an element of free will. And I mean it's it's kind of weird that um free will and and determinism uh and also like compatibilism in the middle is really as far as i can tell one of the most fundamental moral quandaries and moral questions that we have and it seems like most of us don't even delve into that question at all. And this movie actually dealt with that question. Uh, and I mean, it, 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 it gave an answer that I'm not sure is correct, but at least it dealt with the question. <laughs> and yeah did so in a serious way. Um, well, like most movies raise questions and not give definitive answers because it's up to the viewer to some degree. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, I, honestly, I think the, uh, you know, upon multiple viewings, the answer that Minority Report gave was that there's some kind of a compatibilist answer to the question of free will that, you know, like, for the most part uh, determinism is true but uh, that there is some element of free will 